Chapter 41 of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On a Chalk Hill. At our feet is a tidal river a mile wide. Close behind us are low hills crowned with beech woods, which disclose here and there the front, or it may be only the chimneys, of a large country house. Autumn cornfields lie on the slopes between the plantations and spread over the plain beneath. Neat hedges, trim parks, and the frequent towers of village churches tell us that this is a country of wealthy proprietors. The river, like all great rivers, carries our thoughts far beyond the plain through which it flows. To the east we see low on the horizon the smoke of a great port. Slow barges, and now and then a sea-going steamer, tell of busy inland towns which find here one outlet for their wares. The mud of the ebbing tide of the Humber has been washed from the hills of Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, and half the Midland counties, and it is not only water and sediment that are carried out to sea. The river bears along the products of many a thriving English town. We can follow them far beyond the horizon to the mouths of great rivers across the sea, the Meuse, the Scheld, the Elbe, and the Vesser, which stand open to receive what we send, or to send what we are glad to receive. The hills about us are chalk hills, as an occasional quarry shows, even without the quarries, no eye familiar with the wolds and downs of Chalkland could mistake such contours as these. Towards the west we look down upon a flat plain with interminable fields and hedges, a plain of sand, marl, clay, and gravel, out of which starts a bold ridge, all but the very base formed of chalk. The chalk here is six hundred feet thick and dips gently towards the east. If it were possible to sail southward in a balloon and survey the country stretched out beneath us, we should see the chalk walls standing up as a great step or ridge. They begin in the sea cliffs of Flamborough Head, curve southward, and in the course of a few miles reach the Humber. Where we now are, the depth of the chalk is so great that the river makes only a trifling notch in it, and the chalk spreads without a break into Lincolnshire, slants across the country in a southeasterly direction, dipping beneath banks of sand, clay, and shingle some miles before the wash is reached. Beyond the wash, the chalk rises again, covers a great part of Norfolk, and continues towards the southwest through Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Berkshire, Wiltshire, Hampshire, and Dorset. The tertiaries of the Hampshire Basin, though on the map they seem to cut the chalk in two, merely overlie it. It continues all the way beneath the surface, and reappears on the south coast of the Isle of Wight. In Kent and Sussex it has been upheaved, and the lower formations of the Weald rise through it the chalk sloping away on all sides like the rim of a crater, except where the sea and the issuing rivers have worn it away. In the southeastern counties, it has therefore both an eastern and a western escarpment, each showing a very irregular outline on the map. Beneath the Straits of Dover, the beds continue without known break into France, whither we shall not follow them. The strait is so shallow, only 150 feet deep in the deepest part, that it does not nearly cut through the chalk, here about a thousand feet thick. To the east of the great chalk ridge of England come tertiary and other deposits, which are soft and incoherent, forming no bold features. These occupy the low countries, southern Hanover, Brandenburg, and most of the great North German plain, so that an Englishman who stands on the Gogmagogs or the Wolds knows that there is no higher ground to the east between him and Russia. Chalk is not a hard rock, but it stands out of the plain before us almost as if it were of marble. Its resistance to weathering may be largely due to its porosity, 
all the rainfall is sucked in and there is little or no surface flow. A bed of clay, on the contrary, admits no water and all the rainfall upon its surface contributes towards its waste. I do not know how those people feel who have been bred in a country of soft tertiary rocks where the hills are mounds and the streams slow and muddy. Those who are native to a sterner tract cannot easily be happy long together without gazing upon hills which have a structure of their own, a structure which is brought out and not effaced by weathering. They like their streams to be rapid and clear, untinged by the bed over which they flow. I once spent a holiday in Holstein, a land of gentle hills, lakes, and beechwoods, with here and there an old chateau. The country was pleasant enough at first sight and furnished plenty of occupation to the naturalist, but its charm did not last. Not even the buckets of crayfishes, which with salad furnished the chief holiday diversion of the Holsteiners, could allay the impatience with which my companion and I came to long for a land of firm rocks. Such rocks do not abound in the neighborhood of the Baltic, but we made our way to the little island of Moan and there found sea cliffs of hard chalk rising in places to 400 feet above the beach. The complicated folding and contortion of the chalk in its overlying beds, the pinnacles, the sheer faces looking seaward, and the wooded ravines satisfied the longing which Holstein had been unable to appease. Gilbert White found something peculiar, sweet, and amusing in the shapely figured aspect of the chalk hills. His favorite forest tree, the beech, thrives best on these same hills, and the chalk downs of Hampshire with their hanging woods of beech are among the chief delights of Selborne. Box, juniper, and yew are other chalk-loving trees. Nowhere is the turf closer or the thyme more fragrant than on a chalk down. Our Yorkshire chalk is not so thick nor so soft as the chalk of the southern counties, and the hill forms differ a little. The prominences are not so evenly rounded and the gullies not so sinuous. What is chalk, and how was it made? I do not venture to tell that story after Huxley's lecture on a piece of chalk, which is accessible to all readers. We know, or can easily get to know, that chalk is a calcareous paste formed on the floor of an ancient sea that is very similar in microscopic character to the Atlantic ooze, which now overspreads the almost level ocean floor between Ireland and America, and that it consists, like the ooze, in great part of the shells of foraminifera and minute calcareous seaweeds. The chalk is more purely calcareous than the Atlantic ooze and was probably formed in shallower water. How long is it since the chalk was formed? We have no measure for such intervals of time, and all estimates are misleading. Some have measured the thickness of such a formation as the chalk, guessed at its rate of formation, and then by rule of three figured out the time required for its formation. Except by such methods we have no means of conjecturing when the chalk began to form, nor how long its formation was in progress. It will be more useful to apply a test of antiquity which attempts no arithmetical precision whatever. The chalk is the latest product of what may be called the medieval period in geological history. The modern period, and especially the later divisions of the modern period, are marked by the occurrence of animals which are yet living. The fossils belonging to the latest of these divisions include many quadrupeds which still live. Going further back, the quadrupeds disappear and are replaced by strange forms. The shells change much more slowly than the quadrupeds, but as we trace the life of successive periods and divisions, we find that the shells, too, change with some regularity. In the later tertiary formations, a majority of the shells are recent. In the earlier tertiary deposits, we find the proportion of recent shells gradually falling to 
10%, and 3%. But in the chalk, all the mollusca are extinct, and we have to get very low down in the animal kingdom to infusorians and foraminifera before we can find species identical with those which still survive. The lapse of time since the chalk was laid down may be roughly estimated in another way. Europe has been reconstructed since the chalk time. During the formation of the chalk, a great sea stretched from east to west across what is now Central Europe, extending from the British islands to Sweden, France, Germany, and Russia. The Alps, Pyrenees, and Carpathians did not as yet exist, for we know that a thick bed of limestone, younger than the chalk, runs through all these mountain ranges. When we have said that the chalk is older than all existing species of animals except the very lowest, and that it is older than Europe, we have said all that can be demonstrated concerning its age. What might we expect to have seen if we could have stood on some hillside in these latitudes while the chalk was being laid down in the neighboring seas? The reader must not look for any description such as Hugh Miller used to shape in his eloquent words when a good occasion offered. Next to nothing is known of the land life of the chalk period. When we have said that there were flying reptiles, great reptiles that browsed upon foliage, toothed birds, in America if not in England, some insects, some conifers and some ferns, we are almost at the end of our information. Few indications of land life are indeed to be expected in rocks deposited beneath the sea, and as the secondary formations are nearly all marine, it is not surprising that from the coal measure time to the early tertiary period, our knowledge of the course of life on the land should be almost a blank. Of the reptiles, fishes, shells, sea urchins, starfishes, and corals of the chalk sea, much is known, but the forests of the secondary age and the animals which inhabited them have not been revealed to us. All men now agree that the matter of which these chalk hills are composed was laid down at the bottom of the sea, that the fossil remains of the chalk belong to extinct species, and that the chalk hills have taken their present form in consequence of the waste of rain and rivers. What long and bitter controversies these simple inferences from observed facts called forth, controversies which lasted down to our own time. Rather than accept such propositions, men could be found to maintain that the earth, with all its rocks and fossils, was formed at once, just as it stands, that the fossils are not the remains of real animals, but the result of a formative tendency, whatever that may be, and that the chalk was raised into rounded hills by a kind of effervescence or fermentation. One is inclined to say strong things about those who, even when the facts were forced upon their notice, tried to escape from unwelcome truth by hypotheses so preposterous. But when we run over the names of the naturalists, physical philosophers, and historians who proposed explanations like these, we see that it is prudent not to use harsh words. The history of scientific progress warns us that we too may be unconsciously entertaining delusions just as laughable. Let us abstain from reviling those whose delusions have been found out and pray that when our turn of trial comes, we may not be so unlucky as to be obstinate on the wrong side. Chalk, when free from surface deposits, makes dry hills, yielding pasturage for sheep, and often nothing more. Much hygroscopic water, that is, water which is not free to flow, is nevertheless lodged in the capillary spaces of the surface chalk, and this keeps the vegetation green. Scantiness of water is one chief reason why there are so few towns on the chalk, and why all the large ones have some means of subsistence other than agriculture, such as sea bathing, a seaport, or a navigable river. The clays and gravels above the chalk, 
the upper green sand just below it, and the impervious galt clay, and in many places the lower green sand also, are better supplied with water and are often very fertile. On these beds, or close to them, are situate most of the market towns which supply the chalk district. London is encircled on nearly every side and also underlain by chalk. To the south lie the Hogsback and the North Downs, while far away, beyond the Weald of Surrey, Kent and Sussex, stretch the South Downs. All these are chalk hills. The beechwoods of the Chiltern slope upwards to the northwestern escarpment of the chalk, and the rambler finds them so shady, still and lonely, that he is startled when the milestones tell him how near is that vast city which he has been glad to forget a while. The chalkland of the Chilterns is John Hampton's country. The chalkland of Lincolnshire is Tennyson's country. Here, on the chalk hills of Yorkshire, stood the palace of Edwin. Here, Paulinus preached. Here, the aged elderman spoke of human life and of the sparrow flitting from door to door through the warm house. And here, Kofi profaned his own temple. Salisbury Plain, Shakespeare's Cliff, the sea-worn pinnacles of the Needles, Beachy Head, and the low river cliff on which Windsor Castle stands all owe their existence to the chalk. In old days, England was thought by foreigners to be a land of chalk. The merchant who landed in Kent, Sussex, or Hampshire, and made his way to the capital, saw, while yet far from shore, our white cliffs, traveled on white roads through sheep walks and cherry gardens, and often returned home with the impression that all the rest of England was chalk, too. Some modern travelers, like Taine, have gone everywhere by railway, and give their readers to suppose what a great part of the England of today is covered with cinders. The Englishman, of course, knows well that the chalk downs are but a small part of his well-endowed island. We have a great tree-growing belt, once part of an unbroken forest, which extended from Dorsetshire to the Humber, broad cornlands, moorlands containing beneath their unpromising surface vast supplies of fuel and metal, and marshlands, which might be as rich as Holland were they tilled with the same care. Britain, it has often been remarked, is an epitome of the geology of Europe, for it has a bit of everything, and abounds especially in all that makes man rich. Britain was first enriched by wool, then by corn and cloth, then by coal and iron. Besides all these gifts of nature, the sea makes a road for us to the remotest corners of the world. We occupy the center of the land hemisphere, and are yet so placed that we are invited to send forth our fleets upon the broad Atlantic. The seas are at once our defense and our highway. Beyond the ocean have arisen great nations which speak our language and inherit our institutions. No change of policy or fashion, no discoveries of science that we can foresee will neutralize the advantage of a position like this. It is probable, almost certain, that when man first entered Britain, it was still joined to the continent. There was then no strait of Dover, and the Kentish Downs made one range with the Downs of Picardy. When and how was Britain cut off from the mainland? As to the when, we know some little. It was later than the establishment of our present fauna and flora, which hardly differ except in their deficiencies from the fauna and flora of Europe. As to the how, we need invoke no sudden operation of unknown forces. The sea, fretting the chalk cliffs both on the side of the North Sea and also on the side of the Channel, would make just such a shallow trench as now separates Dover from Calais that shallow trench, has controlled the whole political history of Britain. It made the permanent government of Britain by foreign nations impossible, an invasion so difficult that it has not been seriously attempted since the days of King John. 
while neighboring nations were forced to sacrifice freedom and all else for the sake of military efficiency, we were able to keep our ancient parliaments and put a much-needed check upon our kings. Let us not be overproud of our virtues, for geological and geographical accidents have had much to do with the prosperous history of England. End of chapter 41